The book of Proverbs devotes a lot of time to reputation. You know, reputations are, are hard won and easily lost. It doesn't take five minutes to ruin your reputation for life. It, it takes most of a lifetime to build a really good one. And, the, and Proverbs repeats that theme over and over again as Solomon is teaching his kids the importance of a reputation. Uh, when I, I never stop working. Believe it or not, I actually do put some effort into these messages. And I never really... There really is. And there's a rhyme or a reason. I don't know whose. But if it's good, it's the Spirit's. If it's not, it's mine. That's the way we'll, we'll roll that one out. But I never stopped thinking about it and chewing on it right up until, you know, any quiet moment in the service, my mind starts going back. And one of the things that I was picturing this morning that actually would have been a great beginning slide is that so much about when you hear the words church, when you hear the word religion, when you hear the word Christianity or Christian, you hear the word God, Jesus, those things, it's almost a Rorschach test. Uh, you know, the inkblot test that they use in psychology and psychiatry. Because it tells you as much about the person that, that you're, you're saying this word to as it does the word itself. And those words all have meanings. And they all have uh, great meanings. And they also all have, in some ways, some baggage. And depending on the person that you're sharing the faith with, depending on the person that you're just talking about life with, when those words come up, those words have completely different perceptions. And you may talk about church, and you may talk about faith, and you may talk about God, and you may talk about Jesus, all from the perspective of, I love my God, I love my Jesus, I love my church, I love what they're doing, I love it. While the person sitting across from you comes at the table with totally different things, just like looking at a Rorschach inkblot test. You look at that, and those are used because people see wildly, vastly different things in what really are just ink blots, you know. But it's the same with a church, and they may be coming at it from the point of view of, you know, I only ever knew my parents, and my parents were complete hypocrites in the practice of their faith. You know, they smiled and laughed and sang at church and drank and beat me at home. You, they may be coming at it from the table of, I really wanted to go. I thought it was going to be great. When I got there, nobody talked to me. Nobody cared about me. They treated me like dirt. And you're thinking, but I love the church and I love God and I love that. But we all come to the table with different experiences. And so when we say those things, you know, who knows what, what's heard? You know, if I'm talking about it here, I don't know what you hear. You know, and so I don't, I don't have a clue sometimes how things are perceived unless you tell me later because you're coming at it with a completely different set of perceptions, a different set of preconceived ideas and notions. I don't know. And because of that, when we talk about the church, when we talk about the church this morning, when we talk about the church, we don't know what goes in this blank in a lot of people's minds. I saw one of those man-on-the-street things... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I thought about throwing it in here, but, but I, I changed my mind just because I, I, don't, I don't really know why I changed my mind. I just, you know, it didn't strike me so much. But I was watching this video of man on the street stuff where a guy was asking me, you know, what do you think about the church? And, you know, the answers were all over the place. They were actually majority positive. That's encouraging, right? Because these are just random people on the streets of Manhattan. And they were majority positive comments. But there were the, all of those other things, too. There was hypocrisy. There was wars. You know, when you think about the, the Middle Ages and some mess that the, uh, the Church of the West got into, you, there's all that baggage. And sometimes you might think, well, yeah, but that's not us. I mean, you know, the early Church of Christ never went to war with France, 
Okay, that hasn't happened. A couple of you would like to, but that's a whole other story. But you know, we haven't done it. That's the that's the thing. We haven't done it. So we're thinking that's, but that's not us. That's not me. But in the other person's head. So we don't really get to just assume what goes in that blank for somebody that we meet, and that makes it kind of tough. But can we can we have an influence on that? Do you think we can can in some way or another maybe shape what another person's perspective might be? Let's look at this. John 13. Uh, where we left off last week was around verse 30. And of course, this is the setting of the Last uh, Supper, as we call it. It was the, the setting of this Passover meal Jesus is having with His disciples before He goes. Lots of important stuff happens here. He reminds them again that He is going to be betrayed, and this time He tells them by whom. And right here, at the, where we're picking up, Judas has just gotten up and walked out of the room. And uh, Jesus knows why. Judas knows why. The disciples uh, seem to be mixed as to whether or not they understood what was going on. But, but that's just happened. He's also done all these things. Like we talked about last week, He's washed their feet to show, as John puts it, the full extent of His love. And so the King of kings and the Lord of lords has put on a towel and gotten down on His hands and knees and washed a bunch of uh, disciples' stinky old... Uh, Camel, dung, encrusted, probably feet, right? Gross, nasty stuff. And he's done this. And all of this has an impact. I just get the sense, I don't know about you, I get the sense that the air of the room was just absolutely thick. Curly, what are you doing? The, uh, just lost my rhythm, didn't I? All the screens went blank, including the one right here. That's what happens when you do that. Uh, there we are. The, uh, the problem we have is that we don't fully understand all of the thoughts and the feelings around the table, but we do get a sense of the mood. And as, as, uh, as things get going, Jesus then starts to transition very much to what are the last things He wants His disciples to know. He knows this is it. That's why He's arranged the entire supper. He knows this. He's told them over and over again, it's time. We talked about that last time. That before, all through the Gospel of John, he said, it's not time, it's not yet my time, it's not the hour, the hour hasn't come. But now he says, it is time. And in this time, while Jesus will be with them, he says that the, in the, what we call the Great Commission, that he will be with them, with us too, to the end of the age, in the flesh, living, eating, breathing, sleeping with them every day, in a more tangible sense, for them and things are about to change a lot. And so he starts to tell them, if you got nothing out of the last three and a half years, you've got to get this. And so that's where we pick up. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, I want you to notice especially because Jesus wants us to notice especially what's going on here. Again, last moment. The air is thick with tension. 
And what does Jesus tell them? I, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, we've got to pay attention to all of this part. But here where he says, I give you a new commandment. He says new. And the thing is, we would say, but I think he's told us to love one another before. I don't, this doesn't seem new. And the word that's there in the Greek, and we won't get into all the technicalities because, you know, it starts to sound a little Charlie Brownish. But the new stuff here, he's not talking new like, you know, you went to Walmart last week and you bought a new TV, so it's new to you and you didn't have it before. It's not that kind of new, not a new to me thing. It is new in a sense of quality. So he tells them, I am about to give you a command that in a sense is exponentially different from everything you've ever known about this command. You've heard love one another before. You've said every morning when you've gotten up, the Shema, where you say that you will love God and you will love your neighbor as yourself. You get this stuff, okay? But what I'm telling you is you are going to love one another and you are going to love your neighbor in a way that is qualitatively different, exponentially different from anything you've ever experienced before. And I think when we hear that, we sit there and go, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because here's what I'm going to tell you. I think most of us, even though m most people here are today probably are, are members of, of the Church of Christ. And I'm not going to get too Church of Christ on, on it for those of you who aren't. But we have this weird little habit that's bad. You need to slap our hand every time we do it. Where we'll read a commandment from the Old Testament. Well, that's Old Testament. Like we don't have to listen to it. Okay? Not true. Not what Jesus ever taught us. But that's kind of an odd little bit of residue from the past that we try to get rid of, but finds its way back in every now and then. And so because we do that, though, we sometimes act as though we only have New Testament ideas of the way things are and the way that we ought to be. We call ourselves sometimes, quote-unquote, New Testament Christians, which I think means you're only a third Christian because God gave you an entire book, and that's just a third of it. I'm just saying. But that's what we like to call ourselves. However, if that's true, we would not hold on to our Old Testament view of this command. Our Old Testament view of this command is love your neighbor as yourself. And most of the time, when we say love your neighbor, we still say as yourself. But Jesus changed it and we rewrote it and we forget that. And it doesn't so much matter in the quoting as it does in the living. And often we still live it in that lesser sense. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to do for you as you would do for me. The golden rule. But in this moment, when Jesus says, I'm leaving, and you are what I'm leaving in the world behind me to change it. And what change we've seen so far, Jesus is going to tell them over the next three chapters, all the change we've seen so far was a drop in the bucket compared to what I expect to see in you. He even said, you remember one time when he was doing miracles, he actually told them, listen, I know you think this is amazing, but God's going to do even greater things through you. Jesus really believed and taught that what we see in the Gospels was the shorter, smaller story of the Gospel. That it was just the beginning, prologue maybe even just, to what God was about to do. That's why Luke begins his book of Acts with... Now, here's what you've seen Jesus begin to teach and to do. And then he continues on with what Jesus continued to teach and to do in the life of the church. I think it's not just because Luke ran out of scroll, although Luke did run out of scroll when we look at the manuscripts. 
I think it's providential that Luke has no ending, or Acts has no ending. You ever notice that? It just kind of trails off. It's not even a cowboy riding off into the sunset. Paul is still working and it just drops off. Acts was never meant to have an ending until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was not supposed to stop in the church. So Jesus tells us, here's what I'm leaving behind. And this is where it begins. I am going to change your definition of this commandment to love one another. And I want you, instead of of loving your neighbor as yourself, I want you to love one another. And here is the key phrase, isn't it? Just as I have loved you. Let's think about that. How has Jesus loved? Just in what we've seen even in the Gospel of John. I mean, you flip it open and, and you just start thumbing through. And you start seeing Jesus who uh, loves those who were, let's say, John 5, for example. You have a man there who is unable to get up and walk under his own power. And what does Jesus do? He tells him to get up and walk. And he walks. Not only restoring his health, but his dignity, his place in his family, the joy that he had as he went on his way. He stands up for him too. Same thing happens again in John chapter 9. In John 4, if you go back before, you have the woman at the well, a woman who had a life that she was not real proud of and the community was less proud of. We don't know all the details, we just know that by the circumstances. And Jesus walks up and talks to her. He loves her. He cares for her. He never wants, even though He brings up her past, He never uses it against her. He uses it instead as an opening to say, but I still love you. I still want you to have eternal life. God still wants fellowship with you. And so she goes home excited that this guy actually knew her past. That was the first time she'd ever been excited somebody knew her past. She's always trying to hide it. She's at the well when she's at the well because she's trying to avoid people who know it. She runs back and is like, this guy, he just told me everything I ever did. And they're probably like, then why are you smiling? And she gets people to come out and to meet Jesus. She's just, you know, giddy because this guy has actually just loved her. Treat her like a human being. Like somebody worthy of being treated. Like a human being. Happened again in John 9 when he heals the man who was born blind. The same thing. His parents abandoned him. His religious leaders shunned him. Jesus, at the end of the story, seeks him out. And says, hey, do you know who did this to you? Because the guy was blind. He hadn't seen him before, right? Isn't that kind of funny that Jesus used that on him? You feel like there's no humor in the Bible. Jesus walks up to a guy he's healed from blindness and is like, hey, you seen the guy who did that? Think about it for just a second. And the guy says, no, but I'd sure like to meet him. That's kind of funny too. No, but I'd like to meet him. And Jesus is like, hello. <laughs> you, you didn't see me last time, but it's me. But he, he seeks him out and he, he, he tells him, you know, I know this is awesome that you've just been healed of this blindness, but can I tell you, take care of yourself. That's what he's saying when he tells him, don't, go, don't do something else so that something worse happens to you. Take care of yourself, spiritually. Take care of yourself. Because I don't want this to be the only good thing in your life. I want you to come to sight by faith as much as you just have in the flesh. Because he loved him. That's just a, a tip of the iceberg 
of things Jesus did, just even in the book of John, that goes into, as I have loved you. So Jesus tells the disciples, telling us, I want you to go out and I want you to love one another, each other and your neighbors, in such a way that people cannot help but know that you belong to me. That's what he goes on in this underlined part here. If I can get myself out of the way. Uh, by this, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? You know, what are we known for? What would people put in that blank by the way that we as individuals and as the body of Christ together live and act? If you gave a Rorschach test to your neighbor, and in that was an ink blot that looks like the church, kind of shaped like a cross maybe. What do you think their response would be? Here's a, a second way to look at that. What is their response if they looked at it today? What could their response be five years from now, looking at that ink blot through your testimony, through your life, and through the love that you show them? And how might that change? What kind of an impact could you have on how a person hears a word? It can be incredible. Because everyone that's ever given you a good or a bad impression had that power in themselves too. You know, you, I think restaurant reviews are interesting. They're kind of the same way, aren't they? People come to those things like Yelp or wherever people do those things. I have Yelp, Foursquare, all those things, TripAdvisor, where people can review Here's what it's like. When I'm out of town, I like to look at those things. You know, what's around that I'm not going to find that isn't Chili's, isn't Denny's, isn't all these things that everybody already has an impression of and knows. Our rule is when we travel out of town, you've got to eat somewhere we don't have here. So that's actually a pretty long list, isn't it? But, but it's amazing how, because America just keeps coming more and more homogenized in these senses, it's amazing how hard you have to find and search to get past the McDonald's, the Burger King, and the other thing to find where is still the little mom-and-pop shop place. And when you look online, you see all these reviews. And it's interesting, you know, what people like, what they don't like. Sometimes you'll have one five-star review, best thing I ever ate, most awesome thing in the world. The next person says, waiter was rude to me, food was cold, blah, 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 blah. Both may be true. What was the difference? That was one I saw yesterday. The, uh, the, the waitress was rude and all this stuff. Well, maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. We don't know the story. If she was, what power was in her example that night? And it's no different for us representing Christ in a neighborhood. One person may give you five stars. I bet that's true of all of us, don't you bet? That if it, you read it, some of us, there'd be a mix of five, four, three, two, one, zero, and if I could write a negative, right? To an extent we do get to influence what that would be. Now, you can't manipulate, but we can influence what that might be. But Jesus says there's only one way to do it well. Go out and love people the way I love them. The same things that I've shown to you, I want you to go show. If you know grace, show grace. If you know mercy, show mercy. If you know forgiveness, show forgiveness. If you know patience from me, show patience. Well, that's a tough one, right? But that's what he says. And when you do, verse 35... All people will know that you're my disciples. They'll know you've been with Jesus. Even the people who didn't like Jesus and didn't like the disciples could say in the book of Acts of, of Peter and John, I don't know what they're up to and I don't like it, but I know they've been with Jesus. They're turning my whole world upside down. 
I think they've been with Jesus. They're, they're uneducated and untrained, but I can tell they've been with Jesus. Isn't that what you'd like people to say about you? There may be a million other things you could put in the blank, but in the number one thing you'd like them to put in there, they love me like Jesus. This is from a book, and this is just the, the last part of the quote. Let me grab this right quick. If you've never read the book, uh, The Furious Longing of God by Brennan Manning, I would encourage you to do it. You, you will not regret reading this book. It's just a book that points to Jesus. It's just a brother telling us about the Lord that he's seen. So, you know, that's the weight of it. But, boy, some of the things he said. Before we get to this part, let me give you a little bit of an intro. He says, The Apostle Paul may have understood the mind of Jesus better than anyone who ever lived. He sums up his whole understanding of the message of Jesus in Galatians 5-6 when he writes, The only thing that matters is the faith that expresses itself in love. According to Paul's criterion for greatness in the new Israel of God, the person who is the most Christ-like, closest to the heart of Abba, is not the one who spends the most time in prayer. It's not the one who has the most PhDs. It's not the one who has the most responsibility entrusted to his care. It's not the pastor of the biggest megachurch. No, it's the one who loves the most. I've said before, one of my favorite quotes from Randy Harris was years ago at back when they still had the February lectureship at ACU. Some of you remember the pie, I think, from that. Uh, but he said one time, you know, there will always be other churches that, you know, compared to our congregations, they, they may be able to out-sing us. They may be able to out-preach us. They may be able to out-program us. But if we take this command seriously, nobody can out-Jesus God's people. Nobody can out-love Jesus in God's people. That's always stuck with me, and this is what it is. According to that mysterious substitution of Christ for the Christian, what we do to one another, we do to Jesus. What would Jesus do to the Zacchaeus in your life and mine? He'd pause, look at them, and love them with such disarming simplicity, such unaccustomed tenderness, and such infectious joy that He'd wring from their calloused hearts real bursts of joy, gratitude, and wonder. Jesus expected the most of every man and woman, and behind their grumpiest poses, their most puzzling defense mechanisms, their coarseness, their arrogance, their dignified airs, their silence, and their sneers and curses, Jesus sees a little child who wasn't loved enough, a least of these who had ceased growing because someone had ceased believing in them. Isn't that true? So often the people we want to write off, the Zacchaeus people, we were talking about him in class today, that we just want to write off. Doesn't it just come down to somewhere they needed Jesus to love them as only Jesus can? And whoever it was that was in front of them didn't. He goes on. He says he was speaking to a group of people, and that's where this is going to pick up, uh, a group of people called the Navigators. And they said, well, do you have a word of encouragement for us? And, and he said, yes. He said, why not be identified as a community of professional lovers that causes people to say, how they love one another? Why do we judge Jesus' criterion for authentic discipleship irrelevant? In other words, why do we look at this passage we had earlier? and say, mm, that can't possibly be it. We need to be louder, we need to be brighter, we need to be this, we need to be that. When Jesus made it so simple, Jesus said the world is going to recognize you as His by only one sign. 
the way you were with one another on the street every day. You are going to leave people feeling a little better or a little worse. You're going to affirm them or deprive them, but there will be no neutral exchange. If we, as a Christian community, took seriously the sign that, that the sign of our love for Jesus is our love for one another, I am convinced it would change the world. We're denying to the world the one witness Jesus asked for. Love one another as I have loved you. I want to look back at that. If we as a Christian community took seriously the sign of our love for Jesus is our love for one another. That our love in this room for each other is the make or break of any effort at reaching our community, of any effort of seeing someone come to Christ. It won't be a method. It won't be a Bible study. It won't be anything but what Jesus said it would be. That we love one another and that we love one another as Jesus has loved us. That's the difference. It's not so complicated. It just takes determination. Because love is, in the end, not just a feeling, but a choice. It's a moment where we stop and say, am I seeking the best for this person that's in front of me right now? Or am I only in this for myself? Am I only in it for what I get out of it? If so, it changes the world and it changes the blank. We talk about sometimes the little cliche about the, you know, the tombstone and you know the year you were born and the year you died and the dash in the middle and everything that matters was in that dash, right? For us, everything that matters and everything that determines what's in that dash and even what determines is determined beyond the last year on your tombstone. The dot, dot, dot that a Christian probably ought to have engraved on their tombstone. There's an idea. Is what goes in this blank. What are we known by? Are we known by our building? God help us. Are we known by our parking lot? I hope I can get my van up out of the hole it's in. Are they known by the love that is shown to their family as we give out groceries, as we provide meals, as we teach kids in Tuesday school? Are we known by the love that's given as you treat your, your literal neighbor with respect and with dignity? Are they known by the way you treat your kid when you're in the freezer section at Walmart? Boy, a lot, a lot is learned watching people with their kids at Walmart, isn't it? What are we known by? What are we known for? And the world is going to t- try and fill that blank in for us. The devil is going to try and fill that blank in for us. And he's yappy, isn't he? And he's got all kinds of tools in this world. But I'll tell you something. Greater than the power of any media outlet or entertainment industry or an, a, a, an author's book is the power that you have to choose to love your neighbor as Jesus loved you. And you'll change that blank for somebody. That we will be known by our love. Let's pray together. God, you give us big missions and, and lots of ways to, to love and to change the world around us. And, and sometimes we're overwhelmed by it.
we're intimidated by it. Sometimes we're just intimidated by our, our lack of confidence and our, our flawed selves to attain it. Father, we know that all of this happens only by You and by Your Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that You would pour into this body the Spirit of Christ, that Your love will be known, that Your joy will be shared, that Your peace will be made in lives that right now are in chaos. Father, we pray that You would help us to, uh, instead of, of covering up our weaknesses, Father, we pray that You can use them as only You can and turn them into strengths. We pray, Father, that the greatest thing that people will ever see in us will be You. It's in Your Son's name that we pray. Amen.